I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Baroness Anita Gale of Blindrother, who is a former General Secretary of Welsh Labour, and she's been in the House of Lords for quite a few years now. How many years? Um, 20. Huh? 20 years, is it? My goodness <laughs> me. Tell me about your background, because you're a Rhonda girl, aren't you? Oh, yes, yes. I was born in Blaironda, the very top of the Rhonda Valley. You can't go any further. It's like a dead end once you get there. So a lovely place for children to grow up in those days. We had the, the mountainside was our playground. Very safe place. Everybody knew each other. Uh, we even had the village policeman there so the boys never got into any trouble because they knew if they did they'd soon be caught and the policeman would go and have a word with them but all around it was a lovely little place to to grow up in you know say we had the mountain side we played on we knew learnt awful lot about nature because we could see the you know everything going on the uh, sheep used to roam the mountains and the streets in the ronda at that time so we, we were in the middle of it all, you know? Because people tend to think of Ronda as a very industrial place with all the mines, etc. Yes, but yeah. it's very close, isn't it, to um, rural agricultural Ooh, land. And so they sort of, yes. they're like cheek by jowl, yeah. aren't they, really? Well, my father worked in Furnival Colliery. But the colliery was probably at least a mile away from the village, up on the, on the hillside. So it wasn't, like, in some areas, in the village. That, well, we didn't see the colliery. And we had all this countryside really to play in and lovely views Penpeach Mountain was a, it's a flat top mountain apparently there's very few in the world flat top mountain it's quite so unusual I suppose you've got the sugar loaf haven't you the pie up again yeah. is that a flat top one I don't, I don't know. know I yeah. don't know I think Penpeach is probably <laughs> I don't know but... many others yeah. so your dad was a miner yeah how old were you would you say when you became conscious of politics Oh, gosh, from a very, very early age, I'd say, because I was the eighth of nine children. My Two of my sisters died before I was born, but my parents raised seven of us, and I was, i say, the eighth of the nine. So me and my sister were the youngest, too. So when we, for example, when we had our meals, we all sit around the table, my mother and father and my older brothers, they'd all be talking, they were all talking politics all the time, you know. My father was, oh gosh, strong labour, very active in the NUM. And my mother used to talk about the 1930s, how the struggles they had. As children, I, they were like little stories. It's only as I grew older, I realised, you know, what it, the struggles they had, big struggles. I've always, in that sense, I was brought up in a political home, a labour home. So that was always there, you know. So what about your schooling then, uh, Anita? How did that go? Well, I went to the village school, which was just across the road, a little village school, a lovely little school. But the children there, when I look back, I was a child who uh, wanted to learn, you know. And we had 11 plus, and I can remember the year I tried. I was, we used to have annual exams, you know, at the end of the year. And I, I came top of the class. But that year, I still didn't pass my 11 plus. Right. And only one child did in the school. And I can remember his father was a baker. 
and there was only two children in the in his family, so in that sense he had advantages over other children like myself, for example, and they didn't really teach us how to pass exams. Well, down the road, uh, about two miles down in a village, Chihurbat, there was a school there, Penarangling School. The kids there did so well, you know, because they had a special class. Uh, that trained these children how to pass exams, and we had nothing like that in in, in Right. It was just a lovely little village school. Two of the teachers I know lived in the village, so although it was lovely, I don't think they put too much on academic success. That that's my view of it. So I went to Trevor Secondary Modern School then, and left school when I was fifteen because you you couldn't stay on. Yeah, there was, was no the, opportunity. There was, I was in the fourth form, there was no fifth form, for right. example. So most of the girls went to work in the clothing factory, Polycoffs in Triorki, and most of the boys went to work in the local colliery. Right. Um, uh, so I worked in this uh, clothing factory for about 18 months, and I hated probably every day of it. I imagine going straight from school to a big factory. Over a thousand people worked there. And I had to work on this conveyor belt system at 15 years of age. And it was quite a shock, you know, for me to go straight from school into an environment like that. So eventually, after eight months, I got a, a job then in a local grocery shop, which I quite like to work in there, you know, much, much nicer than, uh, than working in the factory. And presumably in those days... It wasn't like a supermarket where people used to go and pick up all their goods. You oh, would actually no. be serving it them the food. It was a lovely little shop. And then the customers would come in. And I could have a chat with them. And I would serve them. They'd say what they wanted. I'd get it off the shelves. And they'd put it on the counter. And then I'd pack the order. What would happen? A lot of the women, they'd come in, say, midweek with their shopping list. And that would be delivered on a Friday or a Saturday. So we'd have the list, I'd put them all up on Friday and they'd, uh, we had a delivery uh, man who'd come and take the goods around. So when you think of the online shopping they do now with, with you know, Tesco's or Sainsbury's, we were doing that many years ago, except we didn't have the computer to do it, you know, people had to come into the shop. So I worked there and then when I was 18 I got married and I had my first child when I was 19. And then my second child when I was 22. But I always had this chip on my shoulder, really. Then I hadn't had a decent education. So how did you um, redeem that later? Well, when my youngest was four years old, I went back to work in this clothing factory. And then they were making redundancies, because I wasn't working full-time. So unless you could work full-time, you, you were made redundant. But at the same time, I saw this advert in the Ronda Leader uh, for a course in Revelling College, and it was designed for married women. It was from 10 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock. And it was a secretarial course, but you could do your all levels, as they were in those days. And I thought, oh, here's my chance now. So I enrolled there, and it was, like for me, it was marvellous. I could do all levels and when I was there I didn't realise that I could go on and do other things so the teachers there really encouraged me 
and I ended up doing my O levels, my A levels, and I got a place in Cardiff University. Wow, brilliant! So, oh, it's like a dream come true. You Absolutely. Know? So, yeah. what, were you, what did you go and study at uh, Cardiff? Uh, politics and economics. Well, that yeah. makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. all this time when you were obviously looking after children initially, and then you were in the clothing factory, yeah. etc. Your politics, you were still interested in politics. You joined the Labour yeah. Party by that stage? I joined the Labour Party when I was 25. If you were in the Ronde at that time, I think everybody, if you asked them, they'd say, are you in the Labour Party? They'd have said yes, mm. which I didn't realise you actually had to join. And I was asking my father one day about it. I said, what's it about joining the Labour Party? He said, oh, yeah, they meet. Um, they meet. He told me where they met. And then we we had a woman councillor in Blaironda at that time, Mrs. Ellis. Um, so my mother spoke to her and she said, Now Mrs. Ellis said, Go down to her house now seven o'clock on Wednesday and she'll take you to the meeting, which was in the other little village of Blancombe. And we walked up there and that was to start my life in the Labour Party. And what I attended, which I didn't read, it was a woman's section meeting. Because we saw women's sections then in every branch. Uh, it's quite different now. They're based on constituency. So that was the start of me uh, being active in the Labour Party. Right. So after your degree, did you get a job then or what, what happened? When I joined the Labour Party, during the women's organisation, I didn't realise that you could work full-time for the party. And there was a post at that time called the Woman's Officer for Wales. And I thought, oh, gosh, that's a job I would really love to have, you know? And when I was in my second year at university, the job became vacant. So I thought, oh, God, I can't give up university now. i got to know my theory. Like, oh, why did this job become vacant now? But as it turned out, they didn't make, they didn't make an appointment for a long time. So they advertised again, and I applied then. So I was in my third year by then. And I remember writing on the application form, if I am appointed, I can't take up my post until July after I graduated. So I went for the interview in February and I was appointed, you know, the job I'd always wanted. So when I graduated, I had a job waiting for me. Wow. The job I always wanted, you know. And at that time, I mean, obviously the party was conscious of women to the extent that it had this special role. But how would you say when you took up that role, women in the party were treated? Well, when I started working for the Labour Party, which was in 1976, there wasn't one woman MP in Wales. Not one. Because we'd only had three up until then. And... The third one retired in 1970, Irene White, and there were no women MPs then until Anne Cloyd got elected in a by-election in Cannon Valley in 1984, and she was the only MP then until 1997 when we implied all women shortlist. So it took me a while to um, work all this out, actually. Um, you know, I did lots of selection conferences, for example, Nearly always, it had been all male shortlist, you know, because women couldn't get nominations. Well, what was it, do you think, that was holding women back? Were people, as we would now say, sexist in their approach towards women, do you think? Do you think they just thought that women weren't capable of, of doing a good job as an MP? 
Well, the truth is women could not get nominations, you know. Women weren't seen as potential members of parliament. And this went on for years and years. I mean, the selections, conferences I did, where even if a woman managed to get a nomination, and that was quite unusual if they did get a nomination, they wouldn't get a look in, you know. So lots of prejudice, and this applies to all parties, not just the Labour Party. I mean, the Labour Party you now have done something about it. So it was very hard for women to and get anywhere. And sometimes, I think it's the case, that it wasn't just the men who were reluctant to nominate the women, but also women members themselves sometimes It could weren't. be, it could be. Because the image of an MP in those times was a man. So they couldn't envisage a woman doing this job. And the women I've seen who did have a go, not getting anywhere, and they'd go off and do other jobs, quite often um, working for charities, for example, or social causes. So they, were, they made their contribution that way because they couldn't make it on the political scene. So it was very, very hard. And then, thank goodness, eventually the party came to realise there's something going on here and we've got to do something about it. And that's when all women shortlist came in. Loads of things have been tried before then. We, you know, we didn't just go straight into all women shortlist. We started saying, well, if a woman gets a nomination, there must be a woman on the shortlist. Well, that was not a problem. A woman got on the shortlist. And then there has to be an equal number of men and women on the shortlist. So you could have four men, if they got the nomination, you could have four men and you get four women. That wasn't a problem either. Still women didn't get selected. So all these women in front of them, they didn't get a look in. And that is when eventually the party decided that the only way was to, by compulsion really, to say to party members, you have to choose a woman in this constituency. And when I look at women now in Parliament, when you look at the women who are standing for the leadership of the Labour Party, for example... I can probably guarantee every one of them would have come in through an all-woman shortlist. And look at the calibre they are. You know, we could have fantastic women in Parliament. So it wasn't that women weren't good enough to stand. Party members just wouldn't choose women. And, I mean, you can use the example for, uh, of the Conservative Party, who, who, who wouldn't apply all-woman shortlist. It took them 101 years to get a woman MP in Wales. This election now, they've uh, got three women MPs. And they're the first woman in 101 years since women have been able to stand. And that's because they, they didn't do anything, basically. So some women can come through, but, you know, that's a good example. And, you know, we the example as well. Until we applied all women shortlists, we didn't get hardly any women in Wales, you know. How much of a job was it to persuade the party and the units, the appropriate units in the party, to actually make the change and to, to go for all women's shortlist? Because it, it was very controversial, wasn't it? Oh, gosh, yes, yes, yes. Well, the safer the seat was for Labour, the more difficult it is, and it still is, I think. It still is. There are seats, like marginal seats... I mean, you can take Cardiff North, for example. Cardiff North, highly marginal seat. Cardiff North was the first constituency in Wales to volunteer for an all-woman shortlist. And they, to me, they're a great example, you know. They've that was 97, yeah. when Julie Morgan uh, won the election. Yeah. Although Julie had been selected in 1992. 
you know, before we had all women shortlist, you're fairing us again to Cardiff North, because they had a very good example. They've only had women candidates ever since. <laughs> so they really committed, but the seat wasn't regarded as a safe seat. Now, if you go up to the valleys, it's still a hard job. That unless you have all women shortlist, women won't get a look in. Well, of course, there was that um, extremely controversial matter relating to Blind Gwent, yes. wasn't there? Yes. Going back to the early 2000s. Yes. And Peter Law, who by then was an Assembly member, decided he wanted to be the MP for yes. the constituency. Oh. And that was after he'd actually been removed from the Cabinet yes. at the time when Rodri Morgan did a coalition deal with the Lib Dems. He was one of those who I stepped out. Sort of thing. Yeah. 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 And so he actually thought that he then wanted to go to, to Westminster. Right, yeah. But the party decided that that shouldn't happen. Or it decided actually to say that Blinder Gwent would be one of those constituencies yes. that ought to have an all-women shortlist. Yeah. And the local party and the the MP at the time, uh, Klaus Smith, was also yes. very much against all-women shortlist, mm-hmm. wasn't he? And of yeah. course, eventually what happened was that the party insisted on an all-women shortlist and then... Peter Law stood as independent and yeah. won that yeah. election, and then yeah. sadly he he died, he yes. died yeah. Um, yeah. having uh, got got, um, got a brain tumour. What did you make of that row at the time, Anita? And what do you think now, looking back on it, fifteen years later? I think Blaine Gwent was a very difficult constituency to have no woman shortlist because of the culture, you know, the nature of the constituency, a very safe Labour seat very difficult to persuade the members to have an all-room class. And you had Peter Law, who really wanted to be the candidate there. But that was such a unique, unique example of what can happen when you say to a constituency, you can have an all-room class. Because I've never ever thought the rules of the party were there to hit people over the head with, if, if I can put it that way. I, it was very difficult, I know, for the party staff at that time uh, to, to carry this out. But in the, that election where Peter Law got elected, to say there was something wrong with all women shortlist, that isn't right, because people in Wales, like Jessica Morden, for example, she got elected, no problem, on an all women shortlist, and there were a few other women at that time who got elected, and, and in the rest of the country. So if there was something wrong with all of shortlets, none of those should have got elected, should they? It was that uniqueness of Blind Gwent and with Peter Law that caused all that. And, it, you know, it was a big problem for us at the time in that particular constituency. But not anywhere else, you see. And did you ever have any ambitions yourself to uh, go into elected politics, Anita? Well, I did at one time... The Member of Parliament for the Ron that died, this was 1983, and I thought, oh gosh, wouldn't that be wonderful to be the Member of Parliament for the Ronda? Because I did have ambitions there. I was working for the Labour Party at the time, and so I decided I have a go. And so looking back, I realised how naive I was at the time, because we'd only ever had three women MPs in Wales, and the last one had retired in 1970, and this was now 1983, Anyway, I thought, well, people would judge me on my record. You know, I've done a lot in the Ronda. I've worked for the party. 
I'd been active with the trade unions when I worked uh, in the clothing factory, Polycuffs. I was a shop steward. I thought all those would count in my favour. But the reality was it didn't count in my favour. Uh, I did get on the shortlist. I think there were seven or eight, all men except me. And later, uh, one woman told me that her woman sex, they were determined to have a woman on the shortlist, and that was going to be me. So in that sense, I was a token woman on there, you know. Anyway, I had a go, and the general committee chose the candidate then. It wasn't an all-member meeting, uh, all-member vote, rather. And I got one nomination, and I was uh, from a woman's section, and my friend was the uh, the, the secretary, and I think she made sure I got this nomination. Then I went to the, uh, obviously, the selection meeting. And I, I said, I think there was eight men, seven or eight men on me. And I literally didn't get a look in, you know. And I, when I was speaking to the meeting, I thought, oh, these people are not going to vote for a woman, you know. You were just I, getting that sort of vibe from yes, those people. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, at the end of it, I remember a leading woman counsellor, she came up to you, you were so good, Anita, you were so good. You must try somewhere else, you know, don't give up. <laughs> but you didn't? I didn't bother after that. Um, no, uh, had there been all women shortlist at that time, maybe I'd have had a, a better chance, but um, I was going for one of the safest seats in the country. And they weren't going to give that to a woman. Alan Rogers got, got the seat and he, he made a very good job about uh, you know, being the Member of Parliament for the Ronda. But after that, I did everything I could then to help women get selected. I helped with the all-woman shortlist. I made sure those were all implemented and then with twinning. Because I think partly, because of my experience there, the women weren't judged on their ability on merit. They were judged that they were a woman, and when we kind of women MPs, can we in Wales? So that was a very good experience for me. I'd say looking back now, I can see that I didn't stand a chance, basically, you know. But it gave me a lot of good experience. And then, of course, we had the establishment of the National Assembly in Wales. Yes, yeah. And, of course, in the run-up to the first election, which took yeah. place in 1999... There was a big debate in the party yeah. about how to get gender balance yes. in terms of yeah. the candidates. And, I mean, you were involved in that Ooh, a great deal, weren't you? I was really you? heavily so, involved with it, yeah. So yeah. tell us about what happened at that time and how the party was persuaded that it was a good idea to have this twinning arrangement under which... Uh, you would have obviously 40 constituencies and then there would be 20 sets of twins where one yeah. would elect a or select as a candidate a, a male and the other a female. How, yeah. how did all that come about? Well, first of all, we had a policy decision that when we had elections to the Welsh Assembly, we would have an equal number of men and women candidates. And our original proposal was to have an 80-seat assembly, first-past-the-post. So you had 40 constituents in Wales, you'd have two members in each constituency. And for the Labour Party, that being very simple, we'd have one woman, one man in each constituency. That would have been very easy to do. I, can't, I don't think we'd have had much problems there. Then the policy was changed, down to 60-seat assembly, 40 constituencies, 20 on the list. Now... How do you then deal with our policy of having an equal number of men and women candidates? 
So we came up with this idea of what we called an Adam twinning. And again, the way we twin them, they had to be like with like. You shouldn't, for example, twin a very safe Labour seat with a very marginal or conservative seat because that wouldn't have worked, you know. So we had this idea of twinning and we, we, we twinned the constituencies and then we had to persuade some of the merits of it. Now, in most constituencies, there wasn't a problem. I remember going to North Wales and explaining it all to them and I had a document which I gave out to them. They were quite interested. They had no problem with twinning. Then the only question they asked me at that time was why wasn't the literature I put out bilingual? I'd only done it in English in North Wales, you know? So that's the only thing they were concerned about, actually. They they said, oh, well, to them, that wasn't a problem. We didn't have any problems that I can remember in North Wales with this twinning. But as we graduated down to South Wales and the very safe Labour seats, that's where the problems were in getting party members to accept it. Cardiff, there wasn't a problem. It was really in the in the very safe seats that we had a problem of persuasion, and I was the one who had to go in and persuade them to to accept this and and saying why. I mean, we weren't pushing any men out. There was nobody there to start off with, and they were going to have an equal number. There'd be fifty percent would be men, fifty percent would be women. But for some people, I wasn't good enough. So they should have an open choice and they should be able to choose whoever they wanted. And I, I can see that is an argument you can put forward. But what we wanted to produce, and what my ambition was, was we were going to have this brand new institution in Wales. We were going to have a new Wales. And it had to look like a new Wales. I remember talking to one constituent, which was so adamant they didn't want it. And I said, look, if you don't do this, we'd have an assembly... It looked like the old Gamorgan County Council, nearly all men. It looked hardly any woman got elected. I said, and you'll end up with, you know, say 50-odd men and about six women. That's what it'll happen. And I can remember the man in the front row looking at me and he said, well, what's wrong with that? So that's the level. They didn't see anything wrong with it, you see. So we had a bit of a battle with some... We got down to the hardcore of our four constituencies and I had to go around and really persuade them one way or another they had to have it and in the end we did do it but it was hard going it was really hard going not in the whole of Wales but in certain constituencies where they were adamant they were not going to ha accept this policy and if we allowed a few constituents to get away with it the whole thing would have collapsed so to get back to this New image of Wales, and the only way you could produce that was to have a good number of women in the assembly. And as Labour was going to be probably the biggest party, and as voting habits changed drastically, and they didn't, that Labour had to do it, not so much the other parties. If we didn't do it, the the majority, overwhelming majority of the new Welsh assembly would be men. We did it. And then once we did it, and we had all these women elected, I can remember papers like the Western Maid saying, isn't this wonderful? Well, they went so <laughs> They were a bit more critical on that when we were going through the process, I can tell you. But then once we'd done it, and I can remember, you know, going to the first meeting of the Labour group, 
I thought, oh, gosh, this is exactly what I was dreaming of, you know? And it turned out in that election, and it has been the same ever since, in the Labour group, and more women elected than men. And only once there's been an equal number, but all other times, all the other elections, there's been more women than men elected. The irony of it, really, isn't it? But that's because we put women in good seats. That's how that happened. Do you think that as a consequence of having more women in the Assembly than would otherwise have been the case, mm -hmm. the quality of policy-making has been better? I think the agenda is, is different uh, because you've got more women there and they've been able to make their voices heard, you know, and they've been able to influence the agenda. When you think um, the Children's Commissioner for Wales... Would that have come about if we had not a majority or a good number of women? The Commissioner for Older People. You know, you think of the Future Generations Commissioner. All those things. So different from what happens in Westminster. And we, we are such a good example, I think, of what we can achieve in Wales that haven't been achieved in other places. I know when we had the, the first Children's Commissioner, there wasn't one in England, Northern Ireland or Scotland. Now there are. I think they've looked to Wales and think that's a good idea. With the Older Persons Commission, I understand it was the first in the world. There is one in Northern Ireland, but there's no one for England or Scotland. I don't know why not. But all these initiatives, you know, the, the domestic abuse bill that became an act, I went, and that was because women were really, really pushing it. So... If you have just, say, mainly men, you will not get the different views from around the country, different ideas that women have as opposed to men. So I think it's made a huge difference having women there. A good number of women, that is, you know. First Assembly election took place in 1999. Yeah. It was a bit of a shock for Labour, wasn't it? Because I think the expectation had been that Labour might just get a majority or something like that, and in fact it didn't. Yeah. And uh, some very safe seats were lost to the Labour Party. What do you think went wrong then? Do you think it was all down to this um, big row there'd been about whether Alan Michael was being imposed on the party and Rodri Morgan was the popular choice and he should have been the leader instead? Was it, was it all down well, to that? Well, I think there are a few things. We've been in government a little while by then, and we had such a huge majority, you know. And people expect awful lot from a Labour government than they do from a Conservative government. And we were just starting to get, you know, obviously getting the hang of government. And there were some things that were going on, I think, that perhaps everybody wasn't satisfied. But we also had big problems in Wales, not just Alan Michael, that, that. But we had, if you remember at that time, Ron Davis, who had been elected as the uh, the leader of the Welsh Labour Party, he had to resign. It was a Clapham Common incident. Yes, there was all that, you see. And all that came into play at the time of the election. But bearing in mind, too, that, yeah, we did lose three seats we thought we were going to win. Quite a shock to us at the time. Including your own patch of the Ronda. Ronda, yes. No sign of it as far as the party was concerned. But when you have got safe Labour seats, or so-called safe Labour seats, I don't think you really should say safe for any seat, 
as opposed to seats like Cardiff North, for example, where they go out and they fight for every single vote. They know they have to. They don't take anything for granted. In a seat like, say, the Ronda or Clannetley, Isloin was another one. People have been Labour for so long, you know. So there was an expectation, if you like, that people would still vote Labour. And maybe that was taken a bit for granted. And once you take the electorate for granted, I think they can, you know, give you a kick and say, sort yourselves out, sort of thing, you know? Well, of course, we've uh, we've seen a bit of kicking going on recently, haven't we? But, but yes, different, yeah. different circumstances, in a way, because at Westminster, Labour has now been out of power for nearly 10 years. Yeah. Um, and yet the party still got a kicking. What do you attribute that to, Anita? You've been a member of the House of Lords for, as you say, 20 years now, yeah. so in a sense you've been an insider at Westminster. What do you think has gone wrong with the Labour Party that led to this recent um, cataclysmic defeat, if you like? Well, Brexit did play a role in the elections, no doubt about that, and Boris Johnson had a very clear message, get Brexit done, you know, quite simple message, I didn't agree with it, obviously, I wanted to remain... But whatever you think of him, everybody knew where he stood. It was get Brexit done. And we didn't have a clear message at all, you know. It's very complicated. And I think that people, even a lot of Remain people, say, well, we've got to get it sorted. The country gone through an awful period, really. And I think they were, they were anxious to get Brexit done. And we know that the leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, he wasn't popular on the doorstep. You know, that played a big role. For our Labour people, that did. And they didn't really have confidence in him. And the two combined, I think, really... Well, it gives a huge shock, actually. And maybe you know, the policies we were offering... Our manifesto, some were very popular, like rail nationalisation. I think most people in the country would probably agree with that. That would be a good step. I think we offered much too much and meant people didn't, we were incredible. You know, you could it's like throwing sweets out every day and saying, you like us, this is what we'll do. And people tend to think, well, you can't do all that, you know. So there was a combination of things, which meant this was the worst result we've had for... So nineteen thirty-five, and I think the combination of that, you know, made this result terrible for us. How hopeful are you that with a new leader and possibly a new agenda, things can be turned around forever? Oh, I think things can be turned. It depends who gets elected as a leader, of course. Or oh, at the moment, Kesama seems to be out in front. But the interesting thing I think about the lead, this leadership campaign is. Yeah, there's a woman. Now, this is the first time this has ever happened to have so many women putting their names forward. To me, that's brilliant. And it's a result of all women shortlists. You've got all those women now in in Parliament, in the Labour Party, in the Labour Group in Parliament. And they've been there long enough now. And they have the confidence to go forward for the leadership of the Labour Party. That would never have happened without all women shortlist. So there's that benefit, if you like, of giving out the um, party members a really good choice of candidates. And I think they're all strong women who put their names forward. So I think it's going to be a fascinating campaign to see what emerges in the end. 
And you'll be going along to the customs meeting. Oh, yes, in, uh, yes. I'm looking forward to that, to listen to them all, and then I shall decide where my vote's going to go. <laughs> and I guess that even if uh, Keir Starmer, who appears to be the favourite, got yes, through, the yes. fact that these other women have been there means that there will be inevitably a very strong um, cohort of women in the shadow cabinet. Oh, yeah, I would think so. I would have thought all the women who've had a goal have got a good chance of being in, in the shadow cabinet. So I think we'd have a very strong shadow cabinet. Whoever the new leader is going to be, they would have to acknowledge that these women, you know, they're strong women in the party, they put themselves forward, and they're good women as well, you know. Are you optimistic? Oh, I am, yeah, I am. I am optimistic now. I think we can rebuild the party with a good leader, which I think we're going to get. And I think that's what the party wants now, is somebody who will give good leadership and give us hope, because that's, that's been lacking for many people in the party for a long time. I think we can go forward now. Anita Gale, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.